Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back for another episode of the Keto Naturopath, about to soon become the Keto Carnivore Naturopath. Today, I want to talk about Keto Carnivore Addiction and Weight Loss. We put some of these words together almost as if they are a sentence, Keto Carnivore Addiction and Weight Loss. They go together. Let's work backwards. Often, we have tremendous weight gain in individuals whether they are genetically predisposed to a degree, as I'll get to in a second, and I've talked about before, but primarily what it comes from is a uncontrolled appetite to eat more processed foods that basically is all about storing calories to fat without burning anything. So you can have a very heavy person called an obese person who feels like they're starving all the time. So when I say an uncontrolled, this isn't personal judgment here. It is a hard place to be, but it's not undoable. It's because the metabolism has become so extreme to one side of just burning very refined, in essence, pure glucose in its various disguises. And its various disguises are processed foods. Processed foods start from the place we've talked about before, which is simply the grinding and the mashing. So the grinding and the mashing makes for a much faster assimilated, digested, quote-unquote, carbohydrates. And so that dump of carbohydrates, that dump of glucose, or that that extraction of glucose from the carbohydrates you're eating happens a lot faster once that very first step happens, which is the mashing and the crushing. So bread is different than the whole grains. Uh, peanut butter, real peanut butter, or nut butter. Nut butter is mashed up, ground up nuts, and it's much more quickly absorbed, and it much more quickly raises your blood glucose levels then does eating the raw nuts, be it macadamia nuts or peanuts or Brazil nuts or peely nuts. So that's simply the difference at that level. I mean, you can say that's a pretty primitive level of talking about processed foods. And that can go back thousands of years, if not 
hundreds of thousands of years, they mash things up, you know, put two rocks together and you're, you're in business. Probably talk about a pretty simple business plan. I'm looking for two rocks. Two rocks in a bowl would be good. Two rocks in a bowl. Yeah, like we'll do two rocks in a bowl. And then the two rocks in the bowl grew to a mortar and pestle. And then a mortar and pestle grew to crushing up various plants specifically. And what was that? That was the beginning of a pharmacy, of a dispensary. Interesting, huh? Anyway, so business model still has its place today, you know, in terms of real botanical medicine and Chinese herbal medicine, but not in Western medicine. That's the beginning of processed foods. Primarily, it has gone so far beyond just that level. It, it has, so the degree that things became much more quickly absorbed and had faster effects, higher effects on the blood sugar and so on and so forth, that now with all the other chemicals and additives and so on and so forth, you are driven to by the liking of it, you know, your appetites. It really has neurotransmitters down to a fine, fine art. So it is really trying to stimulate dopamine deficiency in essence, first a rise. Ah, you know, it's the anticipation is where you get the rise of the dopamine. And then as you start having that donut, let's say, and you're going to find that the dopamine actually starts to fall. So dopamine is about anticipation. But however, when you have dopamine deficiency, which is because you have had prolonged periods of too much dopamine, you've eaten a lot, it's all satisfied you, and you're just floating on highs. And drugs are the same way. So if you want to put a drug in there, you want to put very refined carbohydrates in there, they're pretty much the same at different levels for sure. And the interesting thing is that, yes, drugs have a slightly different mechanism, but still their mechanism, just like medications, have different ways of elevating your serotonin and a few other things, but they still elevate your serotonin you know, keeping it between the gaps there. So you have some medications are called SSRTs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They kind of box in. They are increasing your serotonin by blocking or making less effective the far side of the neuron gap from absorbing and taking in the serotonin. So it hangs for a little longer, a few microseconds longer in the gap between nerve cells. But so too... You, uh, so these same sort of reuptake inhibitors are certain mechanisms for dopamine as well. So whether it's cocaine or heroin or the various narcotics that are derived from heroin or even glucose, it still is going to, in the net, while you're having it, increase your dopamine. And when you don't have it, you're going to go to very low levels. And those very low levels are the thing that drive you. That's where the, the addiction is made active in the sense that you have to come up to normal and you're trying to come up to normal, let alone high, that you felt before. So the, the effect is the same. Their mechanisms are slightly different, but still it's around dopamine and serotonin for some. Slightly different, but they're overlapping. So, okay, what about all this? So we have keto, carnivore, addiction, and weight loss. Well, so the reason is that people are hungry. So we're talking about an obese individual, and they're hungry, and what they know that they want, what they say that they know that they want, what they believe that they know that they want are usually carbohydrates. And in reality, it's very refined carbohydrate. It's the chocolates, it's the, maybe the donuts, maybe it's candy, maybe it's any of these things, but they're, they're popping on those things. It's just that little bit of kick up, little kick up now and then, and you're always kicking it up to the point when you don't have that little thing to kick it up is that you are in deficit mode and you're a cranky individual. So the thing is, though, when you now have this thing that's going to get you to a normal level of dopamine for the most part, 
a little more complicated than that, but dopamine for the most part. And all these chemicals that support that same thing now. So now that pathway is, as I say, 10 different ways till Sunday, or there's many roads to Rome, many ways to get your dopamine up. And without that thing that's stimulating your dopamine to go up, you're going to be withdrawal mode. Withdrawal mode is the mode that you are out there searching and wanting more. It still puts you into that place of needing more. So when you have these refined carbohydrates in abundance, it drives your glucose up and it drives your insulin up. It usually overcorrects. And so then you have the fall. You have the, the what they call the hangry. The insulin doesn't land you back to perfect. It lands you back to being hypoglycemic for a while. And then you have to sort of eat your way back up to normal. This is the way people are. So you're always about when the high spikes of glucose that pack away all those carbs, that pack away all that glucose that you've just eaten, and it doesn't sort of evenly distribute it to anybody who needs energy in the body, like your muscles or your mind or your nerves or whatever. It goes, no, put those suckers away, get it out of the blood cell, get it out of the bloodstream and put it into fat cells. This is the pretty basic formula. And so that's how it goes. So there's not a lot of using of such glucose for energy. It's packing it away and you're up and down. And then you need more again and up and down. So it gets to be very serrated. So that's kind of the ideal terrible story of one who's both an addict and one who's a carb addict, if you will. I mean, by different means. Most addicts, by the way, are very carb addicts as well. So it's call it more potent things that they're taking to drive up their dopamine versus less potent. And in that scale, the carbohydrates are the less potent form of the addictive substance. All right. So where are we? The thing is, if you can get somebody to gradually start dropping the portion of carbohydrates that they have, you know, now we're headed towards a, a ketogenic diet, which is basically little or no carbohydrates, right? And a carb addict person is going to say, there's no way. There's no way. You have to start increasing the fats. Let's make, let's help them make this transition. The transition, and it's a transition doesn't happen in a week or a day. It actually happens over many months. They need to be a fat burner. They need to be fat adapted and fat adapted takes a while to happen. Not only fat adapted, we, we tend to think that, oh, it's the fat that gets into the bloodstream that goes to my mitochondria, which are basically in all my cells except my red blood cells. And they're all going to now be eating fats, like you're giving a little piece of food to all these little, all these little baby chicks throughout your body, you know, and they're all going to be happy. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a slow sort of changing of the dial that a couple of things have to happen. First of all, your microbiome, you know, your, well, it ends up leaving you as your stool and when it ends up arriving in your mouth as food, so someplace between stool and food is your microbiome and that's your small intestine primarily is where all your nutrients are absorbed. They are the extractors, right? So it gets broken down in your stomach through the acid and the churning and the just pulverizing the suckers. So then it gets squeezed into your small intestine where it gets put into an alkaline environment from a very acidic environment of your stomach. And then other bacteria and viruses and archaea and other things start acting on it. And that's where your vitamins are in essence created by your bacteria for you. So you're eating the byproducts of what you've eaten. So when they say that you've eaten something that's high in vitamin B, uh, that could partially be true and it's a little bit irrelevant because a lot of your B vitamins are made as side effects or side products from your bacteria. So it's the bacteria you're feeding and the deal that you have with your bacteria is if I give you what you want, 
food, certain foods that I think that you want, you've been trained to want, you'll give me what I need, which are vitamins. It doesn't work for all the vitamins. Like you need to have your own vitamin D. It's a fat soluble and others. But that these, these are the side products. And so the fact that they're in food, okay, that's helpful. But it's mostly you want your bacteria, your whole microbiome to get together, just like it's an assembly line, to work on the food that you've eaten to give you what you really want. You're not living on your food. You're living on the byproducts of your food after your guts have worked on it, which is primarily bacteria, but it's also a lot of other aspects too. So you're getting the side effects. Isn't that interesting, right? So you're here to support your microbiome. So your job to be a healthy individual, quote, healthy individual, is to support as best as you know how by having adequate food sources and appropriate food sources is to feed your microbiome. You feed your microbiome correctly and you will be one happy camper. So your microbiome has to now go through a transformation, a transition from primarily being somewhat able to break down this gross food that you've eaten, all these processed foods, which are not real foods at all, all these chemicals that you've been giving it for a while. I wouldn't even say it's adapted. It's done its best as it can under duress for probably decades. Ever since you grew up on Captain Crunch and Rice Krispies and milk, pasteurized and homogenized milk, maybe even low-fat milk, and sugar in your cereals, and then all the high-carb diet you've had for decades, and your intestines, your whole GI system has had to do as best as it can. So it has not adapted. It is just at non-optimal working you know, it's not optimal, is the best I can say. And in some places, it's cancerous. You've It's pushed too far, it's falling apart, it can't keep up, and it starts getting sick. Obvious pathology. So, now you're going from carbs to fat, and do you think that this microbiome that you have had for decades is something to go, oh great, we got good food. We got, and some people are doing stupid keto, we got all this fat? What the heck? Now it's all fat, which we never had before, we don't have much in the way of carbs and, oh yeah, there's some protein in there someplace. It's still not whole foods, but it's more fat-oriented. Well, at least it's a place to start. At least it's a place to start. And what that means when you make such a transition so diametrically opposite of where it was before is your bacteria have to change. That is, what was the bacteria that could break down various carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates and all of the little chemicals? And all those dyes and other stuff you've been having, preservatives and so on, are downregulated. They're no longer needed because that food's not along, not there enough to stimulate their growth. So now what you have are bacteria and viruses and archaea and fungal components that are more appropriate for breaking down fats. And ideally, if you've increased your protein as well, for proteins that are they they rise up. They have to learn to multiply. They have to learn to be the dominant families species of bacteria in your gut. And so we know this from testing stool, from testing uh, samples, that there is a huge transition. I mean, we also know that when somebody takes an antibiotic that a number of, and primarily it's all about bacteria, unfortunately, but we know that a number of species of bacteria are almost exterminated. I mean, they are obviously hit by the antibiotics. That's what they're supposed to be doing, you know, killing out with it. So 
when it comes to antibiotic, you have what they call bacteriostatic and bacteriocidal. And cidal is just like it sounds, like suicidal. So bacteriocidal means it kills. It it doesn't limit the growth of, it kills that particular species and or family of bacteria. As a doctor, you prescribe bacteriostatic. Bacteriostatic makes it very difficult for certain species to exist, but doesn't kill them. At, and what it does, it allows for the healthier, the other bacterias that are not affected by that particular antibiotic, to flourish. So now you come into a more balanced microbiome. That's the theory. And that's the theory. That's, that's the kind of population that I used to treat because they were all on a high-carb diet. And so now we're looking at their microbiome and saying, well, at least it's healthier. It's a healthier diet. You don't have as great a dysbiosis as you had before. Dysbiosis is when one or a couple of species overpopulate. They become dominant and they start running amok. They're uncontrolled. They're out of control. Okay, so back to the this diet you switched over to, you know, the low-carb, high-fat, and your microbiome saying, what the heck just happened here? Well, they're going to have to adapt. And they're going to have to adapt and change their mechanisms, you know, getting different bacteria on that assembly line, getting viruses on that assembly line, archnea and fungal components on that assembly line to break down the food that you're now choosing to eat, which is a better kind of food, especially if it is whole foods. Why I keep on coming back to whole foods is because whole foods is what are this GI tract that you inherited from your parents, they inherited from their parents, and goes back into, we'll call it back the last 200,000 years. That's the mechanism we've had, and, and it was adapted to eat that kind of food. And the whole processed food is something that it goes, what the heck is this? So there isn't any adapt- adaptation to that. Maybe add a 1,000 or two or three or 10,000 years, maybe there will be, but I don't really perceive that's ever going to be a healthy, a lot of people be dying in the meantime. They can't adapt or make that transformation. Okay, then. So that's what's happening, and that's why it takes a while for you to, I become fat adapted, to become ketogenic. Now, some people say, you know, you're wrong, Dr. Goldcamp. You know, I have my ketometer here, or I, I pee on a urine strip, and it shows that I have ketones in my urine, and my ketometer shows I, I have ketones in my blood. That's true. Well, you have learned your body quickly, just like if you were to fast, you would start making ketones. But it doesn't mean that the mitochondria in the rest of your body have become very efficient at using ketones. You were born in ketosis, by the way. So it, it, it is a, it has to remember, you know, it has to come around again to learn how to be efficient in using and utilizing ketones. And that's why people's ketones levels change. First, they go from, oh, I got ketones. They think in the back of their mind, ketones are like money in the bank. They're not going to be healthy for the rest of their life. It's a step in the right direction, but it's not like money. It's not like money in the bank. And the numbers will be pretty high. So they'll be going, oh, I got three and four and five and six and seven level you know, of my ketones. And they're very proud of themselves. And they'll find in six months that their numbers are maybe under one as an average. Well, in part, that has to do with how you now have become very efficient in utilizing your ketones. So that's a process. So anyway, the point about the microbiome and all that has to go through to make the change, and it doesn't make it in a weekend or a week or really even a month, I would give it six months, is because it has to go through the bacteria that no longer have anything to eat, all the processed foods and carbohydrates that you used to eat, have died away, where they're almost non-existent. And the bacteria that 
could digest and helped were on the assembly line for breaking down proteins and fats, they were hardly ever used at all. So now they're being upregulated. They have to be populate and grow populations that are healthy. So your whole microbiome is going to change. And that drives other levels, other mechanisms in your whole body. So it's a real transition. That's why in this transition, people do have things like, well, they call it the keto flu. And some people say, oh, the keto flu is about electrolytes. It's not just about electrolytes. So feel free to use my words and say, Dr. Goldcamp says you're a dummy for saying electrolytes are about keto flu. It's not about the keto flu. It's about a lot of things. I would say they should have more water and probably increase their salt for a day or so to get over the keto flu. But you have things like keto rash as well. So keto rash, now we're talking about a person that probably for decades have been eating crap. And so now your body is saying, we don't have to eat crap anymore. We we can just get rid of it. So you'll probably be getting a rash because you're actually getting rid of column toxins, for lack of a better word, all this crap that you've actually had in your fat cells and other cells you're finally allowing to have access to and either send it out with your urine, your stool, or even your sweat glands. And that's often where the rash comes from. I have never seen it. I've seen pictures of. And so it's interesting, but it makes perfect sense. It's uh, the bigger word for those portals that get rid of waste products, your rectum, bladder, and so on, urine and stool, and sweater called homunculus. And it's an old reference to getting rid of waste products that goes back to the 1800s and the early 1900s. Interesting. Okay, so that's what that's happening. So we have keto. So addiction is going to change at this point. Yes, there's an addiction, but it's not an excuse. What would be an interesting study, I've talked about the Pima Indians before, right? That they have a part in Mexico and they have a part of their tribe, ancestral tribe in the United States, New Mexico and Arizona. And those in Arizona and New Mexico are obese. In fact, that they are the highest incidence of diabetes in the United States, if not the world, by the way. You can say that they are a tribe, a genetic tribe of indigenous people, aborigines people. And so aboriginal people, whether they're Australian we're talking about, or, or in Arizona, or Africa, or the Inuits, they're all of a have not been exposed to refined carbohydrates until the last 100 years, if not the last 50, if not the last couple of decades. So consequently, they have never had to adapt to that. They have a whole different, you know, hey, food is precious store. And these were desert people who lived in the desert. So they really had a very upregulated store every extra calorie you can and be very parsimonious about what you're using for energy of the fool, food you're using. So when they suddenly had all the calories they could have through processed food, think Twinkies, think donuts, think Captain Crunch, think sugar, then suddenly they balloon up and they become huge. And they have all, all the problems of diabetes and so on. So that's simply their ancestral set of genes is doing what it was supposed to do, is being very parsimonious and to be very parsimonious at a time in which there's a lot of carbohydrates being consumed means there'll be fat. So the addiction aspect, what would be the interesting study that I was about to say is that do these do, is there a higher rate of addiction in the aboriginal peoples of the world, ones that I just named, referenced before, because they have this inclination to store first. You know, so they are going to overreact, have even a worse response to processed carbohydrates and so on processed foods in general, 
than European stock that came to North America. That would be interesting. My guess would be they probably have a higher addiction rate. So when we tend to think that, you know, why was it that alcohol was such a bad thing for Native Americans? Well, they weren't exposed to it, for one. And suddenly it's all this free energy. You know, it wasn't like alcohol was way out in the desert and easy to come by. Maybe some fermented things were available, but very seldom. And suddenly when they had these things in body, so had to come in, in bottles. It's a whole different experience for them. So that would be my guess on that. And maybe that's what has already been done. So weight loss is an addiction that you sort of ha- you know sort of about it. You have to get your metabolism off of the track of needing more carbohydrates. And the only way you can do it is not so much by denying yourself something. And this is how people perceive it. Oh, I cut down on the calories and exercise more. I didn't say any about that today. I, I, I'm not about exercise more and starve yourself of carbohydrates. Starve yourself of calories. Let's make a change and make the easiest change first. And the easiest change first would probably be to simultaneously increase the fats and decrease the carbs. We are going to decrease the fats in time. And so, but let's get our body over that transformation, over that transition. Let's get that microbiome over that transition so that we're finally in a comfortable place. And I would say it's it's a month to six months, really, to making this change. And once that change has been made, the addiction would have come down a lot. And the mental imagery has to sort of drop away. And that's going to take a good six weeks anyway for the not to have that mental triggers of a, of a, of a donut and so on. And by the way, in California, when I was out there to a, going to a class, they had these shops called, uh, it's called the donut bar. And these donuts were the size of a pie plate. I mean, they were pretty. They were works of art. I went in and took pictures. So they had this whole array, these counters of incredibly handmade, artistic, huge donuts. Really great to look at. I never had one. And they had a whole bar of microbrews, probably 30 microbrews. So they called it a donut bar. So talk about carbs and carbs. You couldn't help if you went in with the intent of getting a donut and a and some beer, you couldn't help by by the time you left having immediately been heavier than you went in. And not just because of the calories, because you had carbs, increased your insulin, and then you had the alcohol and the beer. And the alcohol quickly forced all the carbs into storage, into fat cells. Isn't that interesting? So probably the worst combination. I went in and I took pictures and I was talking to a woman behind the counter and said, yeah, I'm, I'm just so amazed that this exists. I'm ketogenic, and I don't know if I said I was carnivore at the time. She goes, oh, this is all the food you can't have. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. And she says, guess what? I'm keto too. I don't eat this stuff. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. So we're looking at, I guess the appropriate order would have been keto, uh, weight loss, addiction, keto, and carnivore. So carnivore is now the six months later, from one month to six months later, after we're fat adapted, to start dropping the fat down. When you start dropping the fat down, meaning now we can comfortably burn fat, we can actually comfortably use our own proteins for gluconeogenesis. So we don't need any carbs at all, ever, anymore, none, out, nunca. We now can start burning the fat and that's when we'll start really losing weight. This is the safest way that I have seen to go into weight loss. Some people can, you know, we have a 90-day program and we've sort of remodeled this program as we've gone but it's going to be upfront. We focus on keto and the high fat. We need to coddle 
this new metabolism into making that shift, the metabolic shift, the microbiome shift, call it the double M shift. Then when we come to dropping the fat, we obviously have a lot of body fat, so we're going to prefer to use that. And then as you use that, and you will come out that the bigger you are and the more you lose, obviously you'll have the skin issue, but, and that is a problem. I've seen people that just wear sheets of skin that they've lost and some have to go and get it surgically removed. And others I've heard, and I don't have any first-hand experience here, and nor do I know of anybody else that has first-hand experience that says, here's the array of people before and after. But I have heard that with fasting, and I don't mean intermittent fasting, I mean people who have fasted three to seven days and longer tend to reabsorb the drippy skin, that extra skin, the bat wings, if you will. That's what I've heard. I have not seen that. There is a few groups, fasting groups that I'm part of, and I've I've seen a few posts about that. So there again, it's anecdotal in that regard. But that's the that's the appropriate progression to go through. So when we go through, the, the, the coddling up front is the, is the most important. So you do the testing, you coddle up front by saying, well, we got to make sure that these, and we keep them on track, so they're tracking their macros, or we're really locking in. It's kind of a boot camp approach of a sort. Uh, you got to be careful what kind of line you're going to cross or not cross. And you get them to track their macros, to track what they're eating, and they have the high fat, so they should be successfully making that metabolic and microbiome transition. Then when we go to drop the fat, we, we know about their hormones. We knew about their deficiencies, which are retreating as well through that first four weeks. And we knew, certainly knew about their genome. And then we have a, a boatload of labs, we call a metabolic panel, so we know what things that they could have been very deficient in or problematic in, whether it's inflammation or something like that or vitamin D, or homocysteine, or who knows what. And so by the time they get into being just a dropping the fat, they should be in a very appropriate place. But that's how it goes, and that's kind of like the basic building blocks of losing fat. Anybody that tells you different, I don't see it working at all. I, I think there's a lot of, when people say high fat, low carb, high fat, low carb, forever, wrong. High fat, low carb, maybe initially, and then you drop the fat, if you have fat to lose. For instance, for me, I... I just wasn't quite sure about the carnivore things until about a couple of years ago. That is to drop the fat. And now I look back and I go, was it ever healthy to have high fat? You know, I think that was, that was borrowed from the ketogenic diet, the formal ketogenic diet used for epilepsy. They had to have high fat in essence to obliterate the chance that they were ever going to have glucose, much glucose to use and therefore not go into uh, seizures. But for the rest of us on fat loss, I don't think there is a necessity to have high fat. You need to have enough fat to easily become a fat burner and then drop the fat after that. Otherwise, you're not going to be losing fat. That's just illogical. And by the way, it doesn't work. All right. I've talked to you off for another episode and we'll talk more next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.